0: to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. This week's bonus episode was an interview with Melissa Jira Grant about her recent reporting on attacks on trans life by state legislatures. It's a great conversation, so if you'd like to listen to that episode right after this one, become a Patreon supporter. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes pre-order Health Communism because Artie and I are first-time authors and it really helps, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. On last week's episode with Justin Feldman, we got a chance to get our sort of immediate early reactions to the move of mask mandates being dropped by Democratic governors. And we talked about the role that the urgency of normal squad and their friends like Lena Wen have played in really selling this idea to the public and also helping create the sort of necessary Legitimacy to push it over the line so quickly from abstract idea to blanket policy.
1: (laughs) Bringing it into reality. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Today, we are revisiting this topic to talk about how this framework has just exploded over the last week, inviting some truly awful takes like Yasha Monk's piece called Open Everything. But it has also really set the stage for some anti mask messaging to start coming out of liberals this week. And the landscape of sort of who will not be protected now has not actually changed. It's still the elderly, the medically vulnerable, immune compromised and young children. Right. Not to mention the fact that all of these plans ignore long COVID and the risks of people just from becoming infected. So I guess we're really here today to argue that this is all happening way too soon, which for longtime listeners of the show will feel like some sort of sick deja vu I mean, New York Times reported one hundred and fifteen thousand five hundred and nine new positive cases and two thousand eight hundred and fifty deaths just yesterday. So it feels like a year has passed. We have vaccinations. We have boosters, but nothing has really changed.
2: Yeah. To me, I feel like a lot of the conversation that we have to have today is kind of one big quote unquote focus protection discussion, because I think that is kind of what it has become. Like, that's it. That's all there is now Um, for longtime listeners. You may know or for like people who are really familiar with the Great Barrington Declaration people, you might know what term I'm talking about. But focus protection was like this idea floated early on to basically justify the sort of letter rip strategy that people wanted to pursue in order to reopen that there's some sort of extra provisioning or something for the vulnerable again as if like the vulnerable exist out of society already or as if our welfare systems aren't designed like intricate puzzle box traps already (laughs) uh, where like if you're very lucky you can slot into the appropriate category and receive welfare but usually it's only really if you've just like proven you're deserving of aid right so like into all that what i mean we have I say this because, like, this has become kind of the two things. There is, there is, as we will talk about, I think, some really nakedly anti-mask stuff going around. There's, like, for instance, um, a big piece in Bloomberg that's basically saying, like, well, mask mandates didn't do anything anyway. And as I think we'll get into later, too, like, David Leonhardt put out a piece this week saying, like, here's our five-point plan for protecting the immunocompromised, sort of realizing that there's a little bit of a critical flaw In the done with COVID discourse, right? Because obviously, then people say like, Oh, what about the immunocompromised? What about children under five, whatever, what have you. And so then they have to say, like, Oh, well, basically, what amounts to focus protection, they say targeted protection, or like targeted implementations, or whatever. But it's sort of the levels of just completely not meshing with basic reality (laughs) are just it's like in, incredible to me, because if you imagine, for example, that we're going to do something like uh, like a focus protection, like targeting um, protection for immunocompromised, which a lot of these people then just say like a oh, one way masking like the immunocompromised will just wear well fitting N95s or something like if you imagine that that is the strategy, like we don't even have fucking free healthcare in this country. A lot right. of the people, if, for instance, the state of emergency was lifted Right. If if uh, the Biden administration like took the move to say that they were going to like lift the state of emergency, which there's just like many, many signs that they appear either ready to do that or they've been thinking about it. People are pressing them to make a statement about it or masking at the State of the Union. Right. If that happened, like the one remaining pandemic welfare enhancements, like the Medicaid expansion provision would go away with that because that was like the one thing that was tied to the public health emergency so like what do you intend to, and to you be protecting? clear like
1: it would well, to be clear the effect of that would be this politically uh i mean and just like materially for for millions of people biden would be presiding if he did that and there were no changes in policy he would be presiding over the what would probably be the largest one-time disenrollment of people from medicaid <laughs> In a presidential administration. Effort. Totally. But just uh, allow that to sink in for just a second. When Yasha Monk writes open everything, like one implication that follows from that is that there really isn't much of an uh, health emergency anymore. And the logic that goes along with that is, well, if everything really is essentially normal, which I mean, again, uh, you can talk to any parent um, that I know. Uh, they don't feel that way, especially if they have a kid who's you know younger than five years. Uh, you'd talk to any immunocompromised person like that's not the case. And like, again, anybody who's even had a casual observation of what's happened during Omicron uh, and the fact that uh, hospitalizations are still as high as they are would say that that's absurd. But when you take that argument out to its logical conclusion, and clearly that's what people are going to be pushing Uh, Biden to do, that is sort of the political effect that it will have. Right. And I want to get into like what exactly the claims are. Uh, like exactly what the, the the rationale or the 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 prime objective that that, that people like Yasha Monk are saying that we have to achieve, like what what exactly is doing this going to like help? I want to get into that, but like it's, let's just be like very clear that like the end of the public health emergency that that's sort of the logical endpoint of these arguments.
2: Yeah, exactly. Which, as you point out, you know, I think I think it is important to emphasize here, like, would lead, as you're saying, directly to probably the biggest disenrollment from Medicaid rolls in history, which would disproportionately affect exactly the people who all of these people in these, you know, their opinion columns or whatever are like suggesting that we would like enhance protections for.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that the thing for me that I loved the most was there's this one like very specific framing that Yasha Monk uses in his piece where he says that, you know, the real sort of clash that we have right now is basically that we've got these restrictions. They pose a, quote unquote, heavy psychological burden. They, quote unquote, weaken our social ties. And he asked the question, quote, what purpose... (laughs) Do they still serve? And I think that that's kind of the, you know, the best way to encompass um, what underlies a lot of the logic that's sort of like driving these arguments, right? Is you you sort of say that the the problem is really the fact that this is like March 2020 style long term disruption to the necessary ties of social life, right? Which drive, of course, spending and consumption, but also all sorts of things. And what he really is weighing against it, right, is is that he feels that there aren't really justifiable reasons to continue these things. He has heard, I'm sure, children under five are not safe. The elderly are not safe. The medically vulnerable are not safe. The immune compromised are not safe. Workers are not safe from long covid You know, but that doesn't actually to him and to a lot of these people, that doesn't actually constitute an issue. And I think it's like an obvious point, but it's an important one to say is that, you know, they don't see protecting the vulnerable as a purpose. They don't see that as having use value. And that's a really important point.
2: I think maybe let's get into some of these claims made by some of these people, actually, like maybe the Yasha Monk one specifically, because first of all, they do just... They they amount to sentiment, basically. Right. I mean, it's all it, it really is all all of this stuff is kind of a it might as well be Barry Weiss saying I'm done with COVID or whatever, just like emotionally. I'm over it because mm-hmm. I don't feel like doing this anymore. Um, and I mean, the
0: emotions of healthy people are more important than my life.
2: <laughs> but so let, let me just uh, read a little bit uh, from this. This is a piece called Open Everything by Yasha Monk from just a couple of days ago published in the Atlantic. And here's his argument. I've tried to kind of distill this down to sort of just the key quotes. Quote, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were too slow to adapt to changing circumstances. Now we are once again in danger of prolonging the status quo more than is justifiable. It is time to open everything. The most severe government restrictions on everyday activities adopted at the height of the pandemic have since been lifted. So in response to my call to open everything, some will inevitably claim that America is no longer closed, which true as as we have. But this view ignores how profoundly steps to stop the spread of the coronavirus still affect everyday life and how much reopening work is left to do. An Axios Ipsos poll found that only 18% of Americans say their lives have returned to normal. Do you I mean, do you think that's because of the government restriction, like quote unquote restrictions or do you think that's
0: Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> like I hate when people do stuff like this, right? Because they're using like a non-value judgment question, right? They're like they're using an objective question as if it's a value judgment question, right? So like these people who have asked, you know, who have been asked, like, do they feel their lives have been returned to normal? They're not being asked whether or not they think that it's a bad thing that their lives haven't returned to normal yet. Right. right. But to Yasha, it's a bad well, thing. Well, who
2: knows what they think about well, that? But also, right, right. it's like, I'm saying my they're point not being is,
0: asked, but he's framing it as if that that is inherently a yeah, bad thing.
1: They're not being asked, why has your life not returned exactly, to normal? Exactly. That too. Yeah. And, and this is actually very characteristic of Yasha. I mean, his bigger, uh, a- A- ambit in this piece is talking about how can we get rid of the malaise, right? You know, this sort of very Jimmy Carter word of the malaise. How are we going to get rid of that? And to do that, he he like cherry picks this uh, statement of things not returning to normal. Now, of course, the if you look at what people think sh- policy should be around this, you see majorities of people support, man, you know, mat- mask mandates, you know, any number of these things. That fly in the face of his claim that uh, that what people really want is the end of all of all of this. And he has a real track record when it comes to misrepresenting data. I think my favorite example is his article that that was published some years ago. And was widely criticized because he was making this whole point about how millennials really hate democracy (laughs) and like the millennials sort of want the end of, uh, you know, they're like willing to go to like authoritarianism. They're like looking to China and so on. And if you look at what he did in that one, this is delicious, uh, which is that he uh, is like on a scale of one to 10, how is essential is it to live in a democracy? And he's like, wow, millennials, you know, of a much larger share, you know, don't report being at a 10 and then if you go and like that was his statistic he just presented like the proportion of people who were like rated 10. it a 10 right <laughs> and um then if you go and look it's like oh yeah the vast majority of them in fact f- a far larger amount than like other age cohorts uh, millennials reported an eight or nine right so it's it's like it's sort of like the dick clark like american bandstand you know totally. he's <laughs> like a good beat and can you dance to it uh sort of <laughs> logic but but he is really I think kind of famous for extolling these, you know, like particular middle-class virtues and like this idea that what he really wants to get rid of, or what he really thinks that like opening everything will, will get rid of is the malaise. (laughs) Right. And, and what is that? Well, I have this hunch that when pundits are thinking about this, they're thinking primarily about sort of like Biden or Democrats chances in 2022 or 2024 And what they're looking at that worries them is this Gallup, rolling Gallup survey that reports people's level of satisfaction with life, uh, the sort of happiness index that we talked about last time. (laughs) And, you know, I was looking further into that. And, you know, it turns out that uh, since about 2000, that has uh, the number of people with uh, reporting level of dissatisfaction with life, that's gone up. And it's gone up sort of across the board. And COVID, yes, you did see like a peak of that. But what I think that you dig into the data and what it shows is like, why? What is the malaise that people are experiencing? <laughs> and you look at what people report, like a far larger share of people now report being dissatisfied with, among other things, the size and influence of major corporations. In 2000, like a majority of people uh, we're pretty satisfied with that. Now, a majority of people aren't <laughs> uh, income and wealth, how they are distributed, the quality of the environment, po- the way that the government deals with poverty, uh, the the availability of like uh, affordable health care, uh, things like that. Um, so like, I would agree. I think that you can see uh, th- there is, is sort of evidently a malaise. But if anything, what has happened is COVID has brought to light just how much the various systems that we have that are, you know, supposedly designed to protect people, things that like the Johns Hopkins index is like, yeah, the U S was the most like prepared country for a pandemic, <laughs> and, you know, that any, any scintilla of that reality has been shattered for people. Right. And is it any wonder that people feel a greater amount of like sociological malaise distress at the state of the world or the fact that like Congress and the white house don't really seem uh, to be able to do anything that like, and when even something very simple like, uh, sending people tests, tests is proposed, you know, it's initially laughed off and then, then we send people for tests or whatever, you know? So, uh, you know, I think that the, the problem with people like Yasha Monk is not that they make bad arguments. Uh, you know, tons of people do that in all sorts of lesser, uh, also ran publications that no one buys anymore like the Atlantic. Um, except if you happen to be stuck at, you know, Syracuse airport. Um, but the, I think, issue is that they make bad arguments but hook them to things that are very read- readily observable and visible in the world. Right, And because of that, it gives those arguments grip and it allows them to seem like they're really capturing some sort of trenchant real reality that we have to do something about. But I can tell you that it is not the fact that my students have to wear masks that causes them to have depression or to lose sleep or, you know, any number of other maladies that I have seen them interact with. It's their understanding of what the future is going to be like. The fact that the institutions that they had been told a good chunk of their lives were going to work, um, don't seem to work. And now they're being asked as they sort of move into their like professional, uh, like live lives, uh, or lives as workers, um, that, uh, they're going to either have to like, change, you know, change all of this. Like they're going to have to like deal with it or come to grips with it or just like, you know, uh, somehow habituate themselves to it. Right. You don't think that's going to create malaise. And more importantly, you don't think, or you think that somehow opening everything is going to magically like Ah, like the the clouds parted, and like you know, uh, you know, God like came through the clouds and said, like, my children, like the panda, the pandemic <laughs> is over, and then like another wave hits. Right. Um. Anybody well, who <laughs> listens to this guy is is just like, like, just a clown. Well, but uh, the, this is this is idiotic
2: logic, and this is my whole thing too about Yasha's past, you know, dalliances with I don't know the truth or motivating rhetoric through like whatever statistic you can find or cherry pick or make up <laughs> basically. Um, But it is, you know, there, there are a lot of these guys as we're, as we're talking about and this whole sentiment, I think you're right to point to like how so much of this has gotten tied up in, well, Democrats have to, if they want to have any chance in the midterms, if they want to have any chance in uh 2024 or whatever, then they have to lift the pandemic restrictions because obviously if people are reporting, societal malaise or people are unhappy or whatever or if people feel that you know again to cite what he's citing like people quote unquote uh have not had their lives returned to normal then of course the thing that is preventing their lives from returning to normal is like what is the what is euphemistically called these like restrictions right it's not the idea that like the virus exists like if, again just thinking about it within this uh the scope of the pandemic it's not like That the virus exists, it's not that it is a continuing health threat that may have impacted them or their families already or people that they know Mm -hmm. or anything like that. It is simply, I don't know, like the social presence of masks or something that Mm -hmm. is causing this malaise. And that is such bullshit thinking for a lot of reasons, but... I think you know, for example, someone I saw like someone on uh, Twitter the other day was responding to like, uh, like so you know, friend of the show Abdullah Shehapar, did this really great piece for a Slate, which is a really short piece just saying like, hey guys, w- this idea that is really prevalent, one way masking, is bullshit. Like this is not a this is not a public health solution. This is like a. This is a phrase that can mollify you, sure, but you're just being mollified by an idea, not by like reality, right? right? Um, my these are my words, not like the words from the piece. But I would encourage people to go read the piece. But you know, people were posting about this, like, like if I were uh, someone advocate who is like advocating against the dropping of mask mandates, I would be careful to not suggest that we should be doing indefinite masking. And it's like, okay, we still we're we're too plus years into this we still haven't fucking understood no one has apparently gotten the idea that so much of this stuff is i I hate reducing things to this but is literally a dialectic right it's like i said as much on our um big 2021 roundup episode COVID year two right like if we had for example last may instead of like when cases were pretty low compared to pretty much any other point in the pandemic other than the very 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 beginning If we had rather than having the CDC lift the federal mask recommendation, if we had instead done something, you know, positively to like affirmatively tamp down case spread further, whether that was like paying people to stay home or actually having at that point already enacted like, you know, the promised OSHA standard that never came. Right. We might have actually had a chance of like reducing then the size and scope of this insane wave that like just rolled through this winter. Also right? in the same cuz this all builds over time. The
0: same polling data it's not that hard. he cites, you know, he's like oh 18% of people feel life hasn't come back to normal. And also like 55% of people oppose the government lifting COVID restrictions in that same cohort of people he's right. citing. You know, it's like there's not even an attempt to make an argument that would hold up to anything. And I think the fact is, is that there really is no, as Justin said on our episode last week, there is no underlying public health or scientific justification for any of these decisions Right, and I think that that's very clear, but if you want to still appear to be driven by the science, right, then it's also very easy to find yourself some science that's going to fit your argument right now if you're advocating for those things. The polling data that he like pulled from is this like I can't even figure out which eighteen percent number he's <laughs> referencing because it's like right. <laughs> the web page links to. Ten months of polling data.
2: Well, like, it's kind of like when um, JG Allen or someone. One. It's kind of like when JG Allen or someone says like, oh way masking is proven to reduce risk to like up to ninety percent or something that you have ninety percent protection." 90% and it's like of what? That's ninety percent of no, what? <laughs> right, and it's like ninety percent of what? Like, there's not a study. It literally there's not a study at least that we have found that shows this other than like a couple of like random things here and there that were not, that don't even seem to be the things that he's citing. And then after a certain point, you're like digging and digging and digging to see where these people's bullshit claims are even coming from as though they care about like where the fucking thing statistic is coming from. And then you're just end up with something like I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of JG Allen's speculations about like risk for different types of masking, comes literally from like i don't know like fda grades of certain types of masks in terms of like what kind of filtration they get because he is a ventilation guy like i'm pretty sure and that's not risk like filtration percentage is not anyway you know i i think it is important to get through a couple more um things that he argues here because he some of the arguments i think get in some of Monk's arguments in the rest of this piece get into sort of I think what he sort of projects as like what people like us, for example, um, or people who just get like randomly called like COVID doomers or something are concerned about. And that all gets married with this kind of like complete dismissal of entire sections of the population yeah. as basically like disposable. Right. So, for instance, like here's basically I think really the the centerpiece of His argument for like, why now? Again, this is from Yasha Monk's piece, Open Everything in the Atlantic. Quote, the strongest reason to keep up pandemic restrictions is that some people remain vulnerable. Those who are unvaccinated, for example, remain at significant risk. What do we owe to them? Our current attitude towards the unvaccinated makes little sense. Even as we heap scorn on the unvaccinated, we make sacrifices on their behalf the unvaccinated are subject to immense pressure and moral indignation. Governments and private institutions are doing what they can to make their everyday lives difficult. At the same time, the unvaccinated are implicitly the main justification for ongoing restrictions in that the pro-restriction camp points to the persistently high death toll from COVID-19 and these deaths are heavily concentrated among the unvaccinated. That attitude is also wrong we need not put our lives on hold for the indefinite future because others have decided to risk theirs. (laughs) So the whole thing, it was, Oh, Oh, I've fucking Scooby-Doo meme. I've like taken the fucking mask off. It's the pandemic of the unvaccinated all All along. Oh (laughs) oh my God.
1: (laughs) No, this is, I think at some point in, in supporting this, he's like, you know, wearing a mask in New York is not going to prevent a, an unvaccinated person in Mississippi from, uh, contracting COVID and dying, which to me is the most illustrative and illustratively disingenuous uh, argument that that he makes in this, and and it tells you a lot about the the rest of the piece. But like, obviously, that's the case. But it's also obviously true that you can still prevent the spread of the disease in cities like mine, which yeah. Uh, Large unvaccinated populations don't just exist in Mississippi, my friend, they exist all over the place. And additionally, there are plenty of reports of breakthrough cases, you know, happening in classrooms uh, that are affecting children and teachers. It's so mind bogglingly wrongheaded. Uh, to, to kind of use that as the kind of example, because not not just because it's wrong, but because it's so alluring, because people already have sort of geographical and regional
0: biases, antipathies
1: yeah. that you can that what he's doing here is just like ginning them up totally. and like drawing them out and playing into all of the, you know, sort of you know, a uh, polarization that he hand wrung and wept over in 2016 and 2017 as an essayist. <laughs> right. right. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's the real like laugh element of it, which is that, you know, as a, as like an essayist in 2016 and 2017, that, that was the sort of morose kind of position that he, you know, uh, took on. But the fundamental thing that I think is driving this is, He's a political analyst, just like David Leonhardt is a political analyst, and they're using a very already cabined view of political reality to interpret what is an epidemiological event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, is it the case that uh, people have, you know, it, there's there's social uh uh, friction and and real legitimacy crises going on uh, right now, uh, especially like th- things happening on the far right. Yeah, there is. A- absolutely. And and does masking and uh, like policies related to covid, have they factored into that? Sure, they have. Right. But so have a lot of other policies. And if you think that by somehow just advising people, not not merely advising Government to change its policies, which, you know, we can get into, uh, you know, exactly how strongly were those policies being enforced in the first place. But this is really a question about like civic virtue. And and as was his essay back in May of uh 2021 oh hell yeah uh mm-hmm. you know when he said look you know i'm i'm going into the restaurant and the wait you know the the uh waitress is like uh you know uh, you know can you put your mask on And like i don't want to do that and like that is also his his target is not necessarily just government it's a civic virtue that Absolutely. like if you are a virtuous liberal middle class citizen you won't do these things because you know what the right policy is. And that's (laughs) not at all how epidemiology works. It's not even how good political theory works. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just like, even by, this sort of very jaundiced standards of like liberal political theory in the United States that's an al- that's also a completely logically inconsistent and idiotic argument
0: and i'm glad that we like took a second to focus on this one claim that he's making too because it's also not correct at all the idea that like there is no effect from a highly vaccinated community masking and using precautions on a unvaccinated community when that highly vaccinated community is one of the largest pass-throughs for travel in the United States It's just not true. I mean, I talked to like four different infectious disease epis about this specifically because I got messages from people that were like, did you fucking see this claim? Because he's wrong here. Because actually it does make a huge difference if people are masking in communities like New York, where you have people coming in and out of the state and the city for business constantly and then flying back home. It actually has an incredible amount of impact on what other, you know, as you're saying, felt like in the political space, right, in terms of what is like politically possible in other communities.
1: No, but, I, you know, it's again. Yeah, I think that there's there is, the political analysis is warranted here. Here's some political analysis. Um, <laughs> why do you think that there's a, a malaise? Do you think it could have something to do with the fact that this huge... Opportunity to transform the way that society works in a way that is maybe more sel- solidaristic, <laughs> that says to people, hmm, you know, government actually cares about you. And not just in the sense that it wants to uh, prevent bad things from happening to you, but it also wants to actually enable you to weather um, those conditions in a serious way. Maybe even improve you know, like, the quality of your maybe life. Maybe even My improve God, uh, I don't know. the quality is of a, life, right? Is that possible? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, is, is that possible? Like, you don't look at this can, situation. Can you get someone to check that for me? Sorry. Like you don't look at the situation and think, okay, uh, it's pretty clear to people that uh, that if government exists, it seems to be pretty ineffective at solving a pandemic, and that and and it also seems to have abrogated any uh, claim to protect people from the main things that is like the 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 one oh one political theory reason that the state is supposed to exist, the Hobbesian um, idea that the state should prevent people from dying. And you don't think that that has and the the fact that we've done such a poor job of doing that, that doesn't have some bounce back effect on people's malaise. And you're you just like don't deserve to even be called a political theorist or like a political analyst. You don't know anything about politics. Or epidemiology for that matter. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you liquor. should be writing about. Maybe you should be reviewing restaurants in the greater Baltimore area. <laughs>
0: not even, though, well, because I don't trust this man's opinion on food. Are you kidding me? Look yeah. at how he talks about everything else. He probably looks at like a hamburger that's been wiped across the floor and thinks it's delicious.
2: Well, now that we've actually come full circle on this, I will say I want to mention since Phil, I want to like just rewind like a, a second because Phil did mention um, a few minutes back this, the piece from last May that Yasha um, wrote and this is as close to a restaurant review actually as he's ever written that's true so I did want to actually specifically because I like to uh, especially when it's possible and we have it right in front of us demonstrate when people are basically saying exactly the same thing in pretty different circumstances right I just want to really quickly uh, mention the specific language that Yasha Monk. And this was used. from March. Right? This is May 14th, May. 2021 uh, on, on Yasha's not a, this is not a Atlantic piece. This was on Yasha's own vertical persuasion, um, which I guess is just a sub stack basically um, in a piece called take off that mask. Um, <laughs>
0: I forgot. That's this what is
2: was right talking. after the CDC um, <laughs> changed its masking um, guidelines. I'm just, and I'm only going to read like this really uh, brief part of it. Um, so basically, they you know they they find out that the masking recommendation is dropped. Uh, he and his friends like try to go to a restaurant. Right, that's the setup. Okay. Quote the hostess, a young woman who looked like she reads all the right newspapers and magazines, <laughs> still rolled gets her me every eyes time. at us. You can still pass on COVID when you were vaccinated, she said. But it's incredibly unlikely, my friend responded. In any case, she said bitterly, the CDC guidance doesn't go into effect until Sunday. Then she wordlessly showed us to our table. In parentheses, the CDC guidelines, in fact, went into effect immediately. And in the strange and pointless ritual that has become commonplace inside restaurants over the past months, we were dutifully wearing masks when we entered the restaurant only to take them off the moment we sat down at our table. Unquote. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure that got in there. But um so that's him from may 2021 basically being like now is the time to take off your mask just like he's doing now basically um but uh, so that that's obviously an aside but i do want to make sure that we um
0: we talk about the ancestor part before we so i wanted yeah
2: right this is the this is what i wanted to get to i just wanted to make sure he didn't get away with specifically one other thing okay uh which i which i wanted to take us through because so back to like the more recent one this um open everything article. So I read the part that was him talking about how basically the unvaccinated it's the, it's the line that we've talked about a little bit on the show that like the only people who are dying are the unvaccinated, which is fundamentally untrue, right? There are plenty of breakthrough deaths that are happening. The only, but like, since the only people who are dying are the unvaccinated, like we don't have to, why, why do we have to change our lives for them? Right. Mm Right.
0: Nothing we do in New York will impact anyone unvaccinated (laughs) in Mississippi.
2: Then he spends like two paragraphs (laughs) hand waving about immunocompromised people, Mm. as they all do, um, not taking it seriously and just being like, oh, well, you know, their lives were bad before. So whatever. Then and I find this just rhetorically fascinating because this just goes above and beyond what he even needed to do in this because he could have ended his argument there. Yasha does not end his argument there. He says, the risk posed by bacteria and viruses remains much lower today than it was for the majority of human history. In the America of 1900, for example, nearly 1% of people died from infectious diseases every year, about an order of magnitude higher than today. And yet, Americans exposed to such dangers chose to engage in a full social life, judging that the risk of pestilence, however serious, did not justify foregoing human connection. Uh, If no one ever went out to a restaurant or threw a party again, we'd slow the spread of COVID as well as that of plenty of other infectious diseases. But that would be a cure worse than the disease. (laughs) Like our ancestors, we should prioritize the living of life... Over the minimizing of mortality,
0: and then he goes, "Let's drop the remaining restrictions on our everyday lives. Let's shake off the pandemic malaise. Open everything, which will be my new sign-off now uh, for the show. By the way, no, please, instead of Medicare for all now, solidarity. Why? Why I'm sorry.
2: What kind of argument is it? Life
1: better now than it was in 1900? Listen, isn't it better that we don't have indoor plumbing like people try to do? (laughs) Silly, you know? Isn't it? Wouldn't it be better? Oh, my God. Why do we spend money the capital on capital investment? Yeah. Like, can you Listen, imagine the capital of investment of like having an indoor? Why would you want your toilet indoors anyway? <laughs> you know, <that's laughs> just, but I mean,
0: you know, if we slow, if we slowed the spread of fire, then, you know, it would be a cure worse than the, the disease. It's the, the most absolutely inane idea of of like how risk works right if there was a a hardcore way of doing surgery in the past with no anesthesia would you want to do that now in 2021 right like if you <laughs> could get these. surgery like 1900 tomorrow would you if you could run vintage, society vintage like surgery tomorrow culture. would
1: you <laughs> vintage surgery. i'm just so into vintage <laughs> surgery totally. also like why would you want a really robust network of uh, fire stations with all of those hunky, sexy firemen just strutting around, people will not be able to get any work done. They're just going to be, you know, just pictures the the backdraft movie poster on their uh, (laughs) bedroom wall. They're not going to be able to do anything.
0: Well, I mean, the solution to all of this, of course, is if you don't want to live like 1900, then the thing to do is... (laughs) Who wouldn't? I mean, and who wouldn't? Right. Exactly. It's just so chic. But like the thing to do, right? The real only solution that we have left is this focus protection idea, right? The idea that, you know, it's not really up to society to protect the vulnerable it's more up to the vulnerable to purchase the necessary equipment out of their own money and out of their own pocket to protect themselves in the face of decisions by society to increase their risk essentially and that's what one way masking is ultimately asking people to do well
2: i mean i think that for a lot of people it is like the the thing that they say is that it is up to society to protect to target to do the focus protection to like protect uh for instance the immunocompromised uh everyone as in the case with yasha monk and whatever everyone seems to basically agree like oh they unvaccinated have just you know um taken it upon themselves to assume this level of uh risk to their mortality and they're just wastes of life i guess and, and going so far as as uh, yasha did for example to basically say that because deaths are so high and it's all the unvaccinated that basically like anyone who's still pointing to deaths as a like the, the, the tacit part of that argument is like everyone who's still pointing to deaths as a problem is pointing to a problem that those people made for themselves, which is just a horrifying argument again, you know, especially in the case where like not only the unvaccinated who are dying, but then you do have like fucking pricks like David Leonhardt, who've obviously talked about it at length. I think actually his column that he did this week uh, was really indicative of The way that people are starting to sort of like talk about the immunocompromised as like um, I think that was what the post was like a five point plan or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here's the five point plan. We're going to have a targeted approach, which is very similar to like the language of, quote unquote, focused protection. We're going to take a targeted approach will be on basically like it will be on society at some level uh, to make certain types of extra protections Mm -hmm. for immunocompromised people. But then when you actually do get into the argument, it is basically just, again, hand waving. It's like, and a lot of it is hand waving towards like essentially personal responsibility right. frameworks. And particularly like of his five point plan, it's like, I think the first one is vaccination. There's like, uh, there's a couple others. There's like the, the therapeutics, which is a whole, you know, thing that we could talk about. There's the idea, I think number three or four is the idea that like. Is is the idea of one way masking, mm-hmm. right? The idea that the immunocompromised will <laughs> I think simply it's get
0: one way masking works. Right, is the <laughs> header. <laughs>
2: well, the idea that the immunocompromised will simply get you know well-fitting n95s all With the all that time extra over money and over that and over the, and over the, again that
0: people who are on long-term right. you know chronic illness treatment tend to have
2: and that to the extent that they want to socialize at all or or whatever or be a part of society that they must wear a well-fitting um, n95 or, or something like that and then further one of the points is simply like that the availability of rapid testing is better than it was at a point before (laughs) and it's like it's he calls it like good news rapid testing is available it's like not even part of a he calls it a five-point plan and then by like the fourth or fifth bullet point it's literally like oh also good news like good news is not part of a plan Mm-hmm. Good news, you can buy news, a thirty dollars COVID is, rapid test. Is not a plan.
1: <laughs> it is part of a plan if your definition of plan is uh, <laughs> a, a, a a think piece that will cause people to stop thinking about the pandemic. Absolutely, <laughs> it's part of a plan. But like, but like, even take something as simple as the vaccine claim that like, um, th- this is just you know this is uh, people wreaking havoc on themselves. You can look at like Brazil, right? If you're somebody who's like nominally interested in like, oh, you, threats to democracy, like Yasha or, <laughs> or, you know, David or whomever, like just like look at Brazil. You've got a president who has been an a- even harder anti-vax than Trump, like way harder anti-vax. You've got a huge population of people who are like vaccine skeptical and their vaccination rate in Brazil, like vastly outstrips ours. Why? Yeah. Because they have an actual national public health system that has <laughs> endured and and has actually only recently come under threat. Uh, I've been told because uh, United Health has tried to move in and like privatize, Classic. Uh, yep. push for like privatizing parts of it. Right. So again, uh, just like the the blinkered view of reality on like what is possible, like what. You know, might actually, you know, help turn a corner in these things is so profound that even the most basic um, of these claims is just like completely falls apart on scrutiny.
0: Well, and the thing, too, that's just so funny to me is that it it, it's it's really not. Any different than what came exactly out of the mouths of the Great Barrington Declaration back in early October 2020. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's not that there's been some great effort to try and make this language less offensive and more appealing or make any more logical sense, right? You know, the idea of focused protection from the beginning has always been impossible. Right. And, and when this idea first started coming out and when it was described the way it's still being described, you had so many people speaking out against it. And now it's just a totally different landscape. But there really isn't that much daylight between what was being argued then and what was being argued now.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the only difference is basically that like the I think part of why there was such a big backlash to the Great Barrington Declaration from like, you know, your kind of standard uh like liberals or like democratic party voter or whatever um was because in a scenario before the vaccines it's like those arguments just smacked as eugenic right right but then when you kind of extrapolate that to like you know later on in the pandemic when the biden administration has quite literally since July of last year been doing a drumbeat of like this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and like it is up to you, like literally the president using uh, language like the unvaccinated who will soon be filling our hospitals because of their failure to get the shot. Right? right? Is you know that in a in like that kind of context, it's like okay, because because in the first place, it was like a bit a bit more of a stretch to kind of make the argument like oh, some people are just going to be naturally protected, some people are going to be fine. Though a lot of people think like that. We have a very eugenic culture, right? Mm -hmm. But like, then, you know, again, you change the scenario where like the main line, regardless of whether it's true or not, mostly to like, again, I think gin up, uh, I don't know, favorability polling numbers or something, you know, gin up the idea that like Biden is doing great, right? (laughs) Uh, right? Like motivated by those things, you have this continued insistence that, yeah, in fact, now many people are just totally fine and therefore like, you know, the, I mean, I see no other reason why we, you would see like the proliferation of like anti-mask sen- sentiment from liberals in the last week, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, these mandates drop, you know, again, like Bloomberg ran that piece that was like, uh, well, mass mandates didn't really do anything anyway.
0: Right. right. No. And I, I mean, the thing that's amazing though, is that really the, there really has been no evolution in the solutions for how, in the framework for how the the vulnerable are protected, right? And the idea that I think um, focus protection is some sort of pre existing uh, public health strategy is kind of pervasive. And I don't think a lot of people actually know that this was just not a word that was used to describe any pre existing strategy until
2: ever before. It's yeah, not a public health strategy. It's not yeah. a public well, health we strategy. We talked about this with Justin too. Yeah,
0: and and I just don't think. I mean, I, I was surprised by how many people reached out to me after that that episode that we did with Justin who were like, wait, what are you talking about? I assumed that focus protection was just something that wasn't as good as shutdowns or that wasn't as good as some sort of more comprehensive plan. I didn't realize that it was a completely illegitimate pipe dream, you know, bought up by like three people in Massachusetts who were like hanging out at a you know, conservative think tank. And the fact of the matter is, is that like beyond that, it's actually it's worse than that, you know, because the the idea of focus protection as it was sold in early 2020. Um, I'm going to quote the Great Barrington Declaration here real quick. And tell me if you hear any difference between what Yasho is saying and what any of the people who are, ad- who are advocating for one way masking are saying compared to what they were saying back then. Quote, those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should be open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. So then what about the vulnerable, right? Here is their plan for protecting the vulnerable. By the, the way, great- this
1: was all bu- this is all before the vaccine. Right. To be yeah. This is before the that vaccine. was all October said before 4th, the vaccine. October 2020.
0: Cool. Yeah. And this is uh, here's their plan for protecting the vulnerable. Quote, people who are more at risk may participate if they wish.
2: <laughs> In what society? Hey,
0: people who are more at risk may Your participate game, if they wish. While society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity Mm. if you just replace herd immunity with endemicity endemicity right there is no daylight between this and nasha monk's op-ed
3: yeah exactly between
0: this and what lena wen is saying on tv between this and the urgency of normal freaks you know there is zero zero plan other than consumer choices Right. And the fact of the matter is, though, is that the
3: rather
2: than accepting (laughs)
0: accepting death. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, too, that I think a lot of people kind of frame this as like, well, you know, before COVID, like we didn't really bend over backwards to protect the medically vulnerable i mean we don't even give people fucking health care in this country mm-hmm. so like why are we doing it now why would
2: we do it now why yeah. would we do it now for anyone and, who listened to the end of uh, our episode with justin past the music <laughs> there was in fact a chris cuomo clip where he made exactly that argument last year Well, yeah. and the
0: thing is is that you know uh, I get I I get how people could see that because they're, you know, selfish assholes. But I've also gotten a lot of people who have sent me really angry messages who are like, well, and demanding that we protect the vulnerable. You're just asking for for the working class to pay for masks to protect the immune compromised you know, you're just asking for people to pay out of pocket themselves. And so you don't want just the immune compromise to pay. You want everyone to pay. Absolutely and it's like, <laughs> no, no one should have to pay for PPE right now. Are you fucking kidding me with the mistakes that the government has made with the mistakes we've made over the last three years? Yeah, no we could one should have been pay. sending
2: everyone n ninety fives like a fucking box of them. Thirty per person a, per like month, like a month, every month for like the whole time. If we had fucking wanted to imagine but if we, we put, don't like, have that political economy in the us
0: yeah imagine if we put like one tenth of the money that was spent on super bowl ads into sending people ppe that would be a huge step you know what i mean and that's not even like that's not even in people's political imaginary that's not even on their horizon of anything possible it is really redounded down to who is spending money out of their own pocket and i don't want to have to spend money out of my pocket to protect a bunch of sick people that i didn't spend money to protect before
2: yeah I do want to pause though on one thing that I do think is sort of a um to borrow a term from Phil from a recent episode sort of a conceptual innovation that is I think newer to this point of the pandemic which is if not the if not the sentiment then at least the uh the terminology of one-way masking this is something that like if you've you know read really anything uh on the pandemic in the last specifically in the last week you'll definitely have seen pointed to as like one of the ways that we're going to get everything back to normal and one of the reasons why mask mandates being dropped are is okay or one of the reasons why like you even should feel like comfortable not wearing a mask anymore or something you know the it, it abounds like there's a, a lot of different um People go a lot of different places with this, but basically um, I think one thing that's really interesting is, again, we've, you know, we've mentioned this a couple of times already in the episode, but I think it's really important to just specifically take a second to just refute this a little bit. Like, again, this is something Joseph Allen says it like Lena Wen talks about one way masking all the time. David Leonhart wrote about it in his column uh, this this week and has written about it before it's this idea people say essentially as long as you're wearing a well fitting you know n95 good quality mask or whatever that even if you're immunocompromised that you can just basically go participate in society you'll be fine one way mask like the 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 big drumbeat which i would not be surprised frankly if you've heard the words out of biden's mouth soon um one way masking works is the like is the drumbeat right mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to point specifically to a study uh, that actually Abdullah referenced in the piece that I mentioned earlier of his. Um, And this is a study from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences called An Upper Band on One-to-One Exposure to Infectious Human Respiratory Particles. And I'm not going to get into too much of it. There's a lot contained within it. Basically what they did is they looked at all these different scenarios there's uh in all cases there's like an infectious person and then there's a there's a non-infected other person right um these are referred to in the study as uh i think the infectious and the vulnerable not to say it's like you know a vulnerable population just like that's what they call it it's like you know someone who's not currently infected with covid um they looked at a couple of different scenarios one is like just distance like simply distancing um one is both are wearing N95s um and they're they're speaking one is both are wearing surgical masks and then they had all these mixed scenarios where mm-hmm. it's like one's wearing a surgical mask and one is wearing an N95 um technically it's a it's um the the study was based on UK data so it's based on uh ffp2 masks which are which are different but But it's
0: comparable comparable
2: to n95 so i'm just going to refer to n95s from from this point on basically regardless of whether that's like exactly accurate the main point because there's so much granular stuff that i could get into and uh, maybe I'll, i'll i'll post this in the server um in the in the death panel discord server so that people can like take a look at it themselves but the main thing that really stood out to me is Their comparison between two specific scenarios, which um, they write in the paper surprised them, Mm -hmm. um, which is that if, for example, let's say you're not infected Mm -hmm. and uh, you're talking to an infectious person, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who's currently infected and and shedding virus. Right. So in the scenario where you two are, you two are both wearing N95s, you have um, you're uninfected and there's a person that you're speaking to and they are infectious. You're both wearing well-fitting N95s. You are uh, safer if that person is speaking, like actively pushing out uh, particles like while you're both wearing N95s. Then in the case that you're doing one-way masking, you're wearing a well-fitted N95. That other person is unmasked but not speaking, simply breathing. Does that make sense? If you're doing one-way masking, and right. you're near an infectious you you are wearing a well-fitted N95 and you're near an infectious person who's simply breathing
0: not speaking not not, speaking. not opening their mouth simply or coughing just breathing, breathing in the room with you yeah
2: your risk is higher than if that person is speaking
0: letting out tons of for particles for a sustained
2: period of time yeah is speaking through an N95
0: wow so like
2: what so basically, one way like one-way one messy is bullshit. <laughs>
0: it doesn't
3: work. It I is, mean, it's like
2: it is literally. It is just a line that is meant to make you feel better and to make like, you think that this is, there is something that is being done already for the vulnerable. Right. That is no, it. exactly. That it. is it. Like I said, it's mollifying, but it's not being mollified by you know, quote unquote, following the science or whatever. Right. It's being mollified by an idea.
0: Right. Exactly. And it ignores a lot of the science. I mean, it. I mean, the idea of doing one-way masking is like some sort of sufficient way to protect the vulnerable. Obviously, does not protect anyone from an asymptomatic infection, even if they're vaccinated. Well,
2: I mean, and, and like think think about this. This is what I keep thinking about in that context because I, I know that like talking through the study, for example, can make that rather abstract. But now, like, think about like so. You know, Phil and I both teach, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, when I'm sitting in a classroom with a group of students like i obviously know that there's risk even with masking especially we're in the same room sharing the same air for like you know even with good ventilation or whatever we're in the same room for a sustained period of time right the idea that for example as like uh i think what was it was it um berkeley that dropped theirs recently or said they're gonna mm -hmm. gonna, yeah i think the idea that like for example i could go in and be wearing an n95 and like, you know, I'm for three hours in a room with, let's say, let's say if the institution I teach for like dropped their mask requirement in the middle of the semester, you know, that's X many students breathing in the same room, right? The idea that like my risk is higher, even if none of my students speak the whole right. session not a single right? word that's 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 how i've been thinking about this like just to like to turn it into a real world scenario or something which obviously well, that's yeah like i mean a, re- a
0: huge lecture hall is the perfect example and right?
2: not only and not only like
0: not uh, to mention the students sitting on either side well, of the i don't whoever even i teach a seminar i don't even know i know but, but like, i'm thinking phil's teaching scenario right here
2: but so and and also but also you know any number of like any number of workplace scenarios where we're with like i don't know like a dozen people or something you right? work
0: in food service let's say
2: you're wearing n 95. Sorry, not to be. A, no, not to it's be really like important. Fucking over, like going over it's and over about that. It's just people
0: yeah. would fucking mention this shit when they're doing their appearances on CNN, saying one-way masking works, but you know, I mean, it doesn't offer as much protection because when you've got like a room full of people, if you've got one person just sitting there breathing, not wearing a mask, it still is releasing virus particles into the air to, at a level that puts immune compromised people at risk, whether they're wearing a mask or not. Right. I mean, exactly. that's a, not well, just immune compromised people, but anyone who has a child under five.
1: This is why I think it's particularly I think, galling to me to see somebody like David Leonhardt, you know, I'm imagining you know, 40 years ago or so, would be, you know, <laughs> taking the pipe out of his mouth and saying, you know, in a voice that would chill beer, no, <laughs> following the science is a lot harder than you might think. <laughs> As if, as if we don't already all know that mostly what you do when you're writing the New York Times newsletter, or getting paid 10, 10 K like Lena, uh, my girl to go on uh CNN. Oh yeah. Enjoy every, every single 10 time. 10 K per appearance, um, as far as we per know. Per appearance, baby. Um, and you know, as if, as if somehow what you're doing in, in those moments is anything other than just rehashing a series of stylized facts that, you know, fit your argument. I mean, uh, it's it's all it's this is all a kind of politics because uh, we are trying to represent a slice of reality that we feel is being missed mm-hmm. in some way. And to me. It is important that if, okay, we admit, all right, we're all doing a kind of politics and talking about this, that you try to capture as best you can the reality of people who don't have as many choices as a David Leonhardt does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. That just seems like a basic, even... You know, even like that, that, that's like a maybe Rawlsian, like liberal idea of like how you would talk about reality is that you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you don't actually miss some slices of reality that you actually like put an emphasis on trying to get those pieces right. And mostly what has happened is that um, we are reintroduced uh, over. Uh, a series of uh years um to a set of anxieties, concerns um and worries that really affect a very rarefied number of people
3: mm-hmm.
1: um and you know uh, that I think really that just don't comport with the way that most of um people would experience, and certainly that don't describe uh, or really put any weight on the realities of people who are dealing with any of these things at the clinical level. Yeah. So th- even by a very, I think minimalist standard of uh, ethics, you might say, even for essayists uh, who have, you know, always skirted this boundary, like unlike journalists, like essayists and I guess newsletter writers, <laughs> you know, like the editorial standards are different. We're just talking here. Hey, I'm friggin' just talking here. Um, that like that, that's always been sort of, but like, even by those standards, this is, uh, it's, it's hellacious. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's contemptible. I guess
0: my thought was, my thinking was just like how technically, you know, I guess if you're following like real Rawlsian liberalism, then if someone can't contribute to the economy, then you have no opportunity to save them and no necessity or obligation to them really. Uh, which is interesting because a lot of the people who are gonna be made sick by being infected in the workplace, whether they have any, you know, uh hospitalization or not, right? We're gonna make a lot of young working people have cardiovascular problems.
3: Oh, for sure. Therefore
0: rendering them yeah, you know, under the liberal framework, like no longer Rawlsian productive citizens of the body no politic deserving. yes yeah. right because we're, it's all based we're on the heaping taxpayer more, and more people
1: into that yeah exactly we're heaping more and more people into that group into that group that is no longer it no longer gets the priority of place in in sort of liberal political theory yeah that's right
0: yeah
2: sometimes i almost feel like uh the moment that the biden administration like you know there obviously there was like the big follow the science drumbeat or, or whatever and you know um i feel like the moment that like the Biden administration came in, it's like a whole bunch of pundits were given copies of like Bruno Latour books or something. They'd be like, actually, <laughs> actually, science is a social construction. You know?
1: <laughs>
2: Welcome yes. to the pasteurization of David Leonhardt. So you're saying um, we need to <laughs>
0: abolish Bruno Latour?
2: No, I'm just saying that like our only it,
0: hope out of the pandemic is to abolish Bruno Latour.
2: You know, it's just it's obviously we've you know we've talked about the fall of the science claim yeah, endlessly, true. but it's just it is. Fascinating to see things I guess I'm just thinking about this because specifically like uh, Phil reference that other column by David Leonhardt, and Harper's like <laughs> all of the science. It's not that simple.
1: It's not that simple. If you start, um, if you start thinking about cookie dough, man, like say, <laughs> right, you start all thinking the thinking about like they they gotta tell you like cookie dough's bad. Yeah, we didn't they even. They're to tell you like hamburgers until like hamburgers arguments. at Wendy's are bad. Like it's it's, it's going towards the Joe Roganization, the Joe Roganization of the center left. Oh my god!
0: I made one tweet about that piece, and for six days people were arguing about medium rare meat in my mentions. God. Like that's the priority <laughs> here. really like you know someone was like well i wouldn't order a rare burger at applebee's but i would not wear a mask to go to a baseball game it's like (sighs) sir it's
1: it's 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 totally the (laughs) it's i need i feel like at some point we got to come back to the cast the old cast Sunstein article that frank pasquale was telling us about they ruined popcorn (laughs) yeah i feel like that might be a sort of rosetta like a rosetta
2: stone (laughs) that's definitely like patron episode material I think Hell that would yeah. be really maybe not the whole maybe not a whole episode on they I'll ruined be popcorn. eating popcorn Although, on Mike while we I talk am about open that. to I, I I mean I'm not going to judge until I go back and read that piece and see how much meat is on that uh, bone for lack of a better metaphor. That was a how much nutritional
1: metaphor. yeast is on that popcorn. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I do think I guess a final sort of serious thing. I will say that I think the. Frustrating thing about a lot of this, I think, obvi- obviously, among other many other things, is that, like, you know, there's so many, obviously, there are all these uh everything's fine people just, like, around saying all this stuff. And this is not to say that necessarily, like, there will be immediate horrible consequences of this. But even if just, like, thinking about, you know, the example that I used earlier, which was, like, the stuff that happened in May 2021 and how obviously you know that would have been a time to tamp down spread uh like a great time to tamp down spread just like right now if if you know cases are indeed going down or whatever uh like if cases do continue to go down would be a really good time to take some extra measures to tamp down spread not do the opposite thing right right we still Um, have to
0: get down the back half of the slope that we climbed up in infections in the last seven weeks
2: and the thing that i really want to I think emphasize and maybe point people's attention to just to start really watching for it is my big concern, I guess. And question is like, what happens when like we literally us as death panel, but also anyone who's been like derided as a COVID doomer or whatever uh, we have this entire time had at the very least the very public and very accessible knowledge of how many cases have been reported, how many deaths have been reported, Mm -hmm. even though both of those figures, the way that they're counted, like the CDC, but you know, itself estimates are undercounted. Like for every one death that's counted, there are actually 1.3 deaths uh, according to the CDC. Right. But like my, my big concern is like what happens, for example, if like, you know, cases go down for, like enough or for a sustained enough period that even though like it's not gone and stuff will come back that like in the context of the normalization wave that we've just created like stopping reporting becomes really normal like the new york times COVID tracker goes away like you know we have like it's not like we have to do a lot of stuff to find these numbers like the New York Times keeps a fucking tracker of them. The Financial right. Times keeps a tracker of them, right? Well, but it's not like what we're seeing with are... breakthrough
0: deaths where really the way that I find out breakthrough deaths is because Wes Bignell is painstakingly finding them state by state yeah, and tweeting report- it out, right? Exactly. right? Like,
2: And yeah. shout out to Wes for doing that. Yeah, God thank damn. you, by the thank way. You.
0: Huge thank you. I mean, my biggest concern is that people like David Leonhardt, you know, they're framing this as basically, well, like, yeah, restrictions can reduce COVID illness and protect the immune compromise, but it's going to, quote, you know, cause isolation frustration that fuels suicide drug overdoses and violent crime you know i'm like really concerned as an immune compromised person about what my life is looking like going forward and i don't understand you know how i'm supposed to protect myself if we further normalize things and then face anything close to what we faced in the fall of 2021 in 2022 which is absolutely possible
2: lest you think i'm overstating this I just want to remind people that, for example, like last summer in July, a number of states shifted to like weekly reporting and Nebraska, for example, like stopped reporting virus cases altogether, like not only virus cases, like any virus related information for Mm -hmm. two weeks. So it's not considering that there are major, you know, for instance, like uh, as floated by Zeke Emanuel and Celine Gounder. Uh, among others, right there were like proposals to consider the to like sort of remap covid mortality burden as part of uh a focus instead on like the greater sort of aggregate statistic of respiratory infection burden right like my point i guess is that i'm I'm concerned for what happens when you know these people basically get their way,
1: but I think this is the the broader point is that if if we admit that much of what we know about the pandemic and what is being filtered through as, you know, the state of the current knowledge base is really the product of politics and really the product of a pretty, you know, and, and, and really the deck is sort of stacked because it's not that hard to to get these messages out there in a way that uh, really tramples on Um, the realities of people, but like those realities are resurgent. Like you can stop talking about the numbers. You can stop reporting them. They won't stop being there. Exactly, People's experience of the world won't change just because you stop talking about it. And if there's like any, you know, example of this, it's just like, look at the way that we talk about the economy. Mm -hmm. Like look at just like for, 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 you know, since Bretton Woods, since 1944, like we, we talk about the economy as this aggregate, statistic that compiles production and it's like wow it's doing really well and then and it's like well no it's not because i'm not seeing it you know (laughs) like okay yeah we're producing more stuff but i'm not my my quality of life hasn't improved things cost a lot of money my wages aren't increasing and the thing is that decoupling between the way that elites talk about reality and the reality that the rest of us end up having to experience that calcifies and that produces the kind of, you know, grotesque politics that we've seen uh, in this country, I think for, you know, for like half a decade, at least that that's where it comes from. In part, it comes from people telling us everything's great. And then, you know, being forced to confront that lie with the reality of our own lives and how things work, which is, all of this is to say that, in fact, it is sort of an important political act to continue to refuse to, you know, purchase what they're selling. And I and I think not to use the the mythical they, you know, like <laughs> a sort of conspiratorial they, but like to to actually say, look, what is in fact happening in hospitals? What is in fact happening in terms of breakthrough deaths? Like these are important things that it is. Uh, A kind of crime, a kind of political crime to ignore, and it, it feels futile to try to push against that. It feels futile to try to call that to account. But I think any amount of energy that people spend doing that work is an ounce well spent. Yeah
0: i think that's a great place to leave it actually Mm -hmm. thank you phil that's like a really good end cap there and listeners uh if you'd like to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes follow us at death panels underscore And for patrons, we will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you later next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.